I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. In the previous episode, we stepped past the velvet rope. Or maybe it's through the looking glass that we stepped. On the arm of Brett Easton Ellis. And here we are on the other side. Los Angeles, 1980. The world of his first novel, Less Than Zero. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. To Brett, 1980 LA is a time and place that's brimming with a spirit of brightness and buoyancy, delight and delirium, that exists in a state of innocence, of rapture, of grace. And the whole country seems to be following the beat of its eager, adolescent heart. Brett, an adolescent himself then, he turns sweet 16 in March, on that moment. Me and my peers were very aware that we were living in a particular time, and that was youth culture of the early 80s really seemed to be centered in LA. You saw it in all of the movies from Fast Times to Valley Girl, to the music that was being made, to the Go-Go's being thrown out there. And I also think that it has a lot to do with the way LA looks as a kind of paradise, a kind of Edenic, Eden-like location. There was this sense that we were at the red-hot center of youth culture. And I felt growing up here, really now in retrospect, was kind of glorious. In short, it's not the L.A. that appears in the pages of Nathaniel West, or Raymond Chandler, or Robert Town, or the L.A. that appears on the screens of Billy Wilder, or Nicholas Ray, or Roman Polanski. No, it's the L.A. of Beach Blanket Bingo, or any of the other AIP beach party teen movies from the 60s, only updated. Instead of the beach, the mall, though the beach too, and backed by a soundtrack of West Coast new wave girl bands, as ingenuous as blue skies, as beaming as sunshine. Yet also occurring in the city at this very instant, a dark flowering, a wicked ripening, a disenchantment both ruinous and spectacular. Here's Brett reading from a 1998 New Yorker piece called That Was Then, written by Michael Tolkien. For a brief time, somewhere between 1980 and 1983, before the Beverly Center was fully rented, before the traffic slowed down everywhere, Los Angeles wore a pessimism worthy of the name. 
A true sexy radical pessimism, an aggressive pessimism finally optimistic in its sure love of doom. Made from punk, cocaine, the Talking Heads album Fear of Music with a cover in imitation diamond plate, the name of Vim Vendor's film company, Gray Cities Films, which said everything, Slash Magazine, back issues of Wet Magazine, The Band's X, Fear, Suburban Lawns, Madame Wong's, and Lady Snow, the Tiffany's at head shops at the corner of Crescent Heights and Sunset. This was in that time when everything was numb, but the numbness was beautiful. The numbness expressed a harmonic correspondence with the vibrations of a city unknowable except through controlled degradation. Ooh, baby, a darkness that illuminates rather than obscures, a pessimism that exhilarates rather than depresses. It's a wonderfully suggestive description, but because I'm literal-minded, to my abiding shame, I can't leave it at suggestive. I want Michael Tolkien to tell me what exactly he's suggesting. So I message him on Facebook. He's willing to talk about that was then. The only problem is, he wrote the piece over two decades ago, and his memory of it has gone vague, grainy. Okay, so you're about to hear a clip from my dialogue with Michael, and I want to apologize in advance. I've been working on this Bennington project for years now, since 2016. It began as a piece, an oral history, that I pitched to and subsequently wrote for Esquire magazine. I didn't know back then that it would take the form of a podcast, so I recorded a bunch of the early interviews casually, carelessly, for the benefit of fact-checkers, not listeners. Point being, the audio quality of this Michael Tolkien conversation isn't great. Now, on to the conversation. Oh, God. This is, I, I mean, I'm, this is, you're asking me to dredge stuff up that, that I haven't thought about in a long time. That isn't, uh... I know. I know I'm tormenting you, but it'll be quick. I realize how annoying I'm being with Michael, but I just can't stop myself. What was it about early 80s OA that made it so special? And then it all about, I don't know. I ask him again and again, a broken record. What do you mean? I grow frustrated when he can't answer. He grows frustrated with my frustration. Finally, to get me off the phone more than anything else, he says... There was a kind of utopian noir quality to L.A. As a friend of mine once said, it was a tropical... And I've never been to Berlin, but she said, no, this is a tropical Berlin. A noir utopia. A tropical Berlin. In other words, early 80s L.A. is a place that looks like a dream, but feels like a nightmare. The same can be said of Brett's house. On its surface, the house I grew up in was just another modest upper-middle-class home along the edges of the hills in Sherman Oaks. But below that surface was a hugely dysfunctional gray zone. Sherman Oaks is a neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, better known as The Valley, a term of endearment wrapped in a put-down, or vice versa. Here's Bruce Taylor, Brett's classmate at Buckley, a co-educational private school in Sherman Oaks, and Brett's best friend since the seventh grade. Sherman Oaks now is not anything like it was back then. I mean, now, of course, you know, the city has bled over into it. Sherman Oaks is just sort of like part of the rest of the city. But back then, you really were in the valley, you know. Just there weren't that many people around. It was a much slower pace of stuff. All of which is to say that Sherman Oaks isn't what Raymond Chandler called the big, sordid, dirty, crooked city. No, it's white picket fence, sleepy small-town America. The Ellis's house on Valley Vista Boulevard has a pool and a dog. Brett's pretty young mother, Dale, who appeared in several national magazines as a model before marriage, 
takes care of it, along with Brett and his two little sisters. Brett's Bennington classmate and friend, Ian Gittler, remembers visiting Brett there during one of their winter breaks. I didn't know much about suburbia when I was a kid because I was growing up in Manhattan in pre-war buildings with electrical sockets that had been painted over so many times they could barely hold a plug. You know, and New York apartment kind of reeked of its own history. And then you get out to Sherman Oaks and everything is new and everything is light and it isn't sort of burdened with history. It's something that when you land in LA, it can be depressing at first. Where is everything? Where's the culture? Where's the edge? And then it just starts feeling good and you stop questioning it. It was a suburban house. It was neat and clean. I do know that it was a very emotional experience, what his mom went through after the earthquake. I'm jumping in here with a parenthetical. That's Lander's earthquake, which occurred in 1992. The damage that was done to that house gave me a better sense of just what an emotional connection she actually had to what I viewed as suburban, and it didn't look like it had as many earmarks. And so when you saw her desire to fix this house, which had her history of raising her children, you understood that suburban life was not devoid of those same kind of personal environmental histories at all. The way Ian tells it, Brett's house, bright, clean, comfortable, full of light and warmth, and Brett's mom are almost one and the same. Bruce Taylor on Dale Ellis. Brett's mother was always extremely, extremely nice and very soft-spoken, always had a book, was always reading something. I think Brett got his appreciation for literature mostly from her. The two of them were pretty close. So I think she liked, she liked having Brett's friends around the house. She liked them. Brett's father, Bob Ellis, a former star running back at Claremont Men's College, is in the high-rolling game of commercial real estate. He joined Cobalt Banker Commercial Brokerage in 1967. He isn't at the top yet. He's rising fast, though, appearing in the People on the Move section of the LA Times in June 1979. But behind the pleasant, easygoing exterior of life in Southern California, this bourgeois paradise, where the days are spent lounging under gently swaying palm trees and around pastel-hued swimming pools, tipping down a pair of sunglasses to accept a drink, something cool and tall from the housekeeper, lurks madness and mayhem. The source of much of the madness and mayhem? The man who made Brett and warped Brett, and thus really made Brett, Brett's father. Brett. I had a mother who was nurturing. I had a father who had completely checked out. Completely checked out. And angrily, too. Ajay Segal, Brett's Buckley classmate and friend, on Bob Ellis. His dad was an asshole. Like a bona fide, verified asshole. He's a cheater, according to a 1985 letter Brett sent to Bennington classmate and friend, Joe Eisenstadt. He wrote, I was at Chasen's the other night and my sisters got drunk and asked my father, in front of my mother, how many affairs he had. He's also a rager, according to Bruce Taylor. I mean, his father, first of all, drank a lot. 
And, uh, you know, his father did have a temper. One time I went over there to meet Brett and we were going to go over to Westwood. And his father was screaming about something. And so Brett came out and said, yeah, my dad won't let me go. So I guess he could be scary sometimes. I never saw him do any physical violence or anything like that. It was more losing his temper. I mean, I never saw him hit anybody or anything like that. Just because Bruce doesn't see it, though, doesn't mean it isn't happening. Brett's Bennington classmate and friend, Paula Powers. I just remember being out to dinner with Brett and talking about our parents' messed up relationships. And I said that, you know, my parents' relationship occasionally got violent. And Brett said, yeah, one time my father, in the middle of an argument, just picked my mother's arm up and smashed it across the counter and broke her arm. Awful, obviously. But it's stranger and more perverse than that. Bob Ellis is not your garden variety brute. Again, Paula Powers. I can't remember where we were, but it was like all of us together and Brett had left and I was still hanging out and Brett's mother was there. And somehow his dad came up and she said, yeah, he he used to kind of ditch me all the time. In fact, I remember one evening he was, I think he was supposed to take a bunch of people out to dinner at a really fancy place, like 12 people. And in the middle of it, he said he was going to the bathroom and he left and he never came back. And so she had to pay for everybody and take a cab home. And she was kind of laughing about it, you know. And I told I told Brett about it, like thinking we'll have a laugh together. And he gave me this look. He said, I've never heard that story. But apparently it wasn't unusual for his dad to do stuff like that. Listeners, take note. Bob Ellis doesn't throw a tantrum, exit the restaurant in a burst of emotion, which would be bad behavior, but understandable behavior. And he isn't trying to dodge the bill for a large and expensive meal, which would also fall into the category of bad but understandable behavior, since his and Dale's bank accounts are linked. If she pays, he pays. There's no understanding his behavior because it's beyond understanding. It's as if his goal is purely to confuse, upset, and humiliate. And that makes him irrational, pathological. And this juggernaut of fury and testosterone is disappointed in his only son. A physically imposing boy, but one psychologically disinclined to organize sports, with a temperament both sensitive and imaginative. A sissy in brief. That's certainly how a man like Bob Ellis would interpret the data anyway. So for young Brett, home is not a safe place, nor is daddy the protector who's going to save him from the monster in the closet. Uh Uh-uh. Home is a place where fear lives, and daddy is the monster in the closet. Here's how Brett escapes the monster, via books. I was reading novels at a very early age. I became obsessed with novels as a child and as an adolescent, and I was a voracious reader. I could read a book in a day, uh, sometimes two. Uh, that's what I, how I spent my time. Horror-themed books especially. The books I read and the movies I watched insisted that the world was a random and cruel place, that danger and death were everywhere, that adults could help you only so much, that there was another world, a secret one beneath the fantasy and fake safety of everyday life. Horror fiction helped me grasp all of this at an early age. Did your mother ever say that to you? That I would hurt you? No, Dad. 
you sure? Yes, Dad. The Shining, about a seemingly loving family man whose homicidal impulses towards his wife and child slowly reveal themselves, is a particular favorite. And Brett isn't just reading books. He's writing them as well. Ajay Segal. I mean, I'd read some of his stories, and he'd written some novel when he was in, like, ninth grade about summer vacation. I think it was called Ain't Misbehaving. Ain't Misbehaving, about the hijinks of a high school kid during a wild and crazy summer, based very clearly on the one Brett spent working for his grandfather in Elko, Nevada, does not sound at all Ellis-like. Nor does School Spirit, the screenplay he co-writes, also his sophomore year, with Bruce Taylor. It was a comedy about a group of friends, and it took place at a private school in the Valley in Los Angeles. <laughs> so basically, we took our story and just made it a comedy about it. It all sort of climaxed in a, uh, a big school talent show. Brett's found his vocation, but he's not yet found his subject matter or his tone. So books and writing are one means of escape for Brett. Another, the movies. In the late 70s, early 80s, a group of my friends and I, we go to Westwood every Saturday and we would talk about it the night before. We would look at the show and we go, okay, we've seen a noon, then we're going to have lunch, then we're going to see our mid-afternoon, then we're going to go have dinner, and then we're going to see our 8 o'clock show. And maybe if we were super ambitious, we'd see like a 10 o'clock show, if we could race around to all the theaters there. This crew of diehard moviegoers is all-male and small. Chip Rosenblum is one of its core members, or is until he leaves Buckley his sophomore year, as is Bruce Taylor. Everything that came out back then, everything, we would see everything. We would go to Westwood and see all those films, and in between, we'd have like two or three hours to kill. We'd go to, you know, Westwood Bookstore, Hunter's Bookstore. In between movies, we'd go to the bookstore and, and read books about movies. And after watching movies and reading books about movies, they would write about movies. Here's Dominic Gross, another Buckley classmate, though not part of the Westwood movie group. I remember Brett. Him and this group of boys, they were kind of funny, you know, but they were accepting guys. And so he was hung around a guy named Bruce Taylor and then this guy named Chip Rosenblum. Chip was a little bit of a snob because of Chip being who he was. His uh, mom is Georgia Frontier, and she owned the Rams. And then his dad, <laughs> his dad ground off, and I shouldn't laugh about this, but Bruce and Brett used to draw these little cartoons about his dad drowning, and, and they used to be so cruel. And I just, like, watched these guys, and they were laughing. Quick interjection. Bruce has no recollection of drawing any such cartoons. Is he sure it was me? Because I didn't know really, and maybe Brett did. I don't know. Back to Dominic. They were funny boys because they would go to Westwood and literally spend the whole day watching these movies, and then they would write their critiques about the movie. And I used to just hang out with them because it would be fun to kind of tease them. So Brett's primary social activity is a solitary one. Yes, he's going out with his friends, but only to be alone to sit in the dark and commune with the screen. And he's compulsive about it. As Bruce Taylor just said, he and Brett would see every movie that came out. And Brett, by writing these critiques afterwards, is actively and aggressively developing his aesthetic, is discovering that he gravitates to the pop musical Grease 
and to the art film days of heaven, to the demotic as much as to the elite, and that taste good and good taste might be for him one and the same. These weekends are, for the most part, pre-driver's license, junior high in the early years of high school. Bruce Taylor. Our parents would drive us over there and drop us off, but usually we would take the, uh, the bus. Basically, it was on the corner of Van Nuys and Ventura Boulevard that right next to that bus stop or in a little strip mall was World Modeling Agencies. The sign was a silhouette of a naked woman and above it, it's a figure models wanted. The World Modeling Agency was a landmark in the last season of this podcast, Once Upon a Time in the Valley, about former adult actress Tracy Lords and the 1986 underage scandal. World modeling was the sun around which the entire 80s dirty movie biz spun, and its sign had a talismanic power. Tracy Lords co-star and ex-boyfriend Tom Byron, who moved to L.A. in 1980 to become a performer on that sign. Basically, it took me a couple of years to find my way into the business. I eventually started moonlighting at the um, La Sex shop in Sherman Oaks. The guy that was training me, uh, you know, I was working nights. He said, yeah, this girl came in here today, you know, in, in the magazine. Their agency's right down the street. My ears perked up. I went, really? Yes, I, I think it's called World Bottling or something like that. And I drove past it after work that night and went, there it is. It's a fucking sign, World Bottling. The sign has power in this season as well, though its power is of a subtler variety and subliminal rather than talismanic. And what it's communicating subtly and subliminally is that there is another valley in the valley. Yes, the valley is an enchanted suburban wonderland, but it's also the capital of sin, smut, depravity, and exploitation. So Brett is able to lose himself in books and movies, and by 1980, he'll have a third means of escape, his car. As a Southern California kid, once I started driving, I felt freedom. I remember I was, it was 1980 and I went and saw uh, Psychedelic Furs on a weeknight. But having a car and having that mobility and being, having access to the beach, mm-hmm. to the mountains, to the desert, um, going to concerts at the Greek, sometimes the Hollywood Bowl. Okay, I'm going to propose something here. Reading fiction is a form of dreaming. Writing fiction is a form of dreaming. Watching movies is a form of dreaming. But so is driving. Particularly in a place like Los Angeles, the dream factory. A city that isn't one. That's really just a vast, horizontal, urban sprawl. And with an apparently endless supply of sun and surf and sand and space and a hazy, temperate atmosphere that erases the distinction between mind and spirit, self and other, consciousness and unconsciousness. Ian Gittler remembers how deftly Brett navigates the dream. At Bennington, Brett had the high score on the Crystal Castle's video game machine in the bar. He was an epic, devoted video game winner. And when I visited him in LA, he had the top score in the mall in Sherman Oaks. And I would describe Brett's driving that 450 SL convertible through the Hollywood Hills at night 
as a video game because he did it fast. He knew where all the turns were. You didn't feel like he was relying so much on sight as on muscle memory. And he did it after, you know, at the end of a night of drinking. It was a little bit insane, but if he is someone who suffered anxiety, he did not seem anxious when he was swerving through those hills. And then there's alcohol and drugs. They also help Brett stay in the dream, keep reality from breaking in. Bruce Taylor. Like most people, I guess we started off, you know, drinking. There was a liquor store on Sunset called Gil Turner's. Back in the late 70s or early 80s, it was notorious. It was a spot where they would sell you alcohol if you were underage. I mean, back then it was just much, everything was just much looser, you know. It was the alcohol and the marijuana first, and then I would say the main thing was was, uh, was was cocaine. Brett isn't pursuing girls in his Mercedes 450 SEL, a hand-me-down from his father. But he is pursuing nightlife, something you have to do in the L.A. of this period because it won't stay still. Is a kind of roaming bohemian demimond. Brett and his friends wander through the dreamscape. You would go to like what seemed like a, just a series of rooms somewhere off of Melrose, and it would be this, this flat gray carpeting, maybe some pinkish lighting somewhere, but basically a dark series of rooms, and there'd just be these video screens, and you'd sit on the floor and pass around Coke and just stare up at these screens. These clubs exist largely in secret and off the grid. Ajay Segal. So there was an underground nightclub right next door to the whiskey, but it didn't have any kind of like windows. But you got in through the back steps, like up in the alley behind the whiskey, you stepped down the steps and you knocked on a door and a little, literally a little slot opened. And if you knew about it, you could get in and it was called At Sunset. It opened at midnight. These clubs also exist outside the law. This is Brett Whitkey, owner of the 80s LA nightclub, Boys and Girls. There is places during that time too that you would go to um, after the clubs closed and they're private and very nasty and yeah. <laughs> Including BJ's. On Crenshaw behind a car wash and you went through a, a bookcase wall after the, if they know you and you'd walk back into this like bar, club. You can order heroin or cocaine at the table. John Seidel, co-owner of 80s LA nightclub Power Tools, did time at BJ's as well. He, too, remembers ordering Coke and heroin. Well, you kind of were obligated to. Out of respect, there'd just be, like, cops and robbers there, and, like, not many clubbers were allowed in there. But I was, like, a like a drug dealer introduced me to, like, this couple. It was a husband and wife. They were great. It was an old uh, black couple. And then DJ would let you in, and he would always say to me, he's like, John, I like you. Anytime you come here, you're always welcome. Just don't tell any of your white friends. A noir utopia, indeed. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. And now for the daylight world. In 1980, Brett completes the second half of his sophomore year, the first half of his junior year, at the Buckley School. Buckley is still a fairly new institution then, and not a particularly distinguished one. Buckley isn't, for example, Crossroads, peerlessly progressive for the children of hippie aristocrats, or the Harvard School for Boys, established in 1900, offering an East Coast-style education on the West Coast. But Buckley puts on airs. For starters, it insists that its students wear uniforms, blazers, slacks, and ties for the boys, skirts and button-downs for the girls. Steve Robbins, an English teacher at Buckley from 1978 to 1998, and Brett's English teacher sophomore year, on the school's ethos. Students were expected to stand up when an adult entered the classroom. It was scary when I saw that. The woman who started the school was very conservative, very, very traditional. And she wanted to create a school that appeared to be more than it really was. And um, I won't get into her philosophy, but it was also scary. It was essentially about teaching kids how to control themselves and fit into a culture that really didn't exist anymore for most people. Steve Robbins on the kind of families that tend to send their kids to Buckley. Rich, more nouveau than established. A lot of entertainment industry people. To that point, in Brett's class is Michael Landon Jr., son of Michael Landon, a former lead on Bonanza a current lead on Little House on the Prairie, and a very big TV star. Fun fact, Landon would appear on the cover of TV Guide more times than any actor in history, apart from Lucille Ball. Steve Robbins on the kind of kid Brett is. He was not mainstream crowd. He wasn't committed to being the best student he could be, but he was gonna go through the paces at school and do all right. Brett is a sleepwalker, moving through the school corridors without thought or haste. No sports, a minimum of extracurriculars. Why risk rupturing the dream with undue exertion? In short, he appears to be everything his father isn't. Unathletic and unengaged, uninterested in girls or conventional achievement, and above all, calmly, numbly, near maddeningly passive. Appears, though, is the key word here because Brett is his father's son, even if he is a mama's boy. He has all of Bob Ellis's drive and ferocity. Libido, too, is just keeping it under wraps. And his need to dominate and control is every bit as intense as Bob Ellis's. Only he doesn't exercise it on living people. But more on that later. Steve Robbins senses that Brett is playing it cool. He seemed involved in something, and it was never clear what that something was. I mean, it was writing, I learned, but he had things going on in his mind, and most of his life seemed to be 
his meaningful life seems to be centered off campus. Steve Robbins hears about Brett before he meets Brett. The teacher who was passing him on to me was not very happy with Brett. Saw Brett as a kind of a willful kid because he refused to write the way she wanted him to write. She was advocating a strict adherence to a five-paragraph essay form taken to an extreme so that the introductory paragraph was sort of a funnel leading into the thesis at the end of the first paragraph. And God forbid you should need any more than five paragraphs because you aren't going to get one from her. And he refused to do that. And it probably took a lot for him to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And I don't know if he failed that class or she let him eat by, but either way, it was a horrible experience for him. And I remember talking to him right at the beginning of our term and saying to him that he can own his own writing now. Steve Robbins is the faculty advisor to the school literary magazine. He asks Brett if Brett would consider submitting a story. And sometime later, he brought by something. It seemed very, very rough to me. Not particularly a successful piece, which made it part for the course with the high school literary magazine. Then, one fateful day, Steve assigns the class slouching towards Bethlehem, Joan Didion's 1967 collection of essays, mostly California horror stories, some quite gory but written in a controlled, lucid, ultra-detached, even fiercely detached style. Brett. It was Steve Robbins who introduced me to Joan Didion. Even though I knew about Joan Didion, because I remember copies of A Book of Common Prayer in my grandmother's room. I remember my aunt, my mom reading the White Album. So I, but I hadn't really read her. I was in 10th grade, and that's activated it. He taught Slashy Towards Bethlehem, and he taught Play as It Lays. Play It As It Lays, which Didion published in 1970, is a novel set in L.A. about an actress, Mariah Wyeth, who is telling her story, again, California horror, from a sanitarium. The style of Play It As It Lays is the same as the style of slouching, only more so. The famous opening line of Play It As It Lays, what makes Iago evil, some people ask. I never ask. Didion, and her way of making the hot look cool, is a revelation to Brett. Her clarity and directness was speaking to me in a way, kind of like punk was speaking to me. The kind of minimal directness was speaking to me in that moment. I was so enthralled with Joan Didion that I was trying to write like her, and I would sit with a book split open, and I would type it out on my typewriter and try to figure out why this is so powerful. Was it a comma? Is it the the italics? All of a sudden, Brett has a language. Not his language, Didion's language. But he's going to steal it, make it his. So Joan Didion is one bolt from the blue that Brett receives in 1980. Here's another. In February of 1980, I was 15 and saw American Gigolo at the National Theater in Westwood. American Gigolo is an erotic thriller about a high-class stud, Julian Kay, played by Richard Gere, who, for a price, fulfills the desires of the lovelorn and loaded in Beverly Hills. Ugly things happen in this movie, including a murder, which Julian is accused of committing. He didn't, is in his Armani suits only dressed to kill. 
and the souls of its people are often twisted, savage, sweaty, and strange, but their surfaces are immaculate. Sunlight and money give them a sheen, a chic, an iridescent glory and glow. Gigolo's look, gorgeous yet decaying around the edges, and its mood, jittery and dread-filled, yet coolly dispassionate, signify a shift. The let-it-all-hang-out style and emotion of the 1970s are over. Looking back, the impact American Gigolo had on me is impossible to tally. Maybe not impossible. As much of an impact as Joan Didion, I'd say. And though I took many of my cues from Joan Didion and L.A. Noir, American Gigolo became a key template as well. There's another way in which Gigolo is something new. Its text is heterosexual. Julian Kay services women. And yet its subtext is not. Sexually uncertain is how I would characterize the movie. Or sexually indecisive. Or perhaps just sexually fraudulent. Homosexual pretending to be heterosexual. Brett again. The light bulb went off. That was really the beginning of the genesis for Less Than Zero, was American Gigolo. And really did move me to, I think, write a short story. A lot of what was ended up in Less Than Zero was from that story, which was influenced by American Gigolo and a new way of looking at L.A. Or it was a new way of looking at L.A., but it was also a confirmation of a lot of things I've been feeling about the city and about gayness, which seemed to me, maybe it didn't to other friends, but I really sensed that there was this gayness was everywhere, whether it was in the Rolling Stones, Richard Gere, whether it was in disco culture. There was just this huge sense of the world was gay, gay, gay. But, and it's certainly there and played as it lays. That's also just kind of an L.A. thing, maybe in a way the closeted gay dude who's not even quite sure if he's gay or whatever that means. I mean, I noticed that I was just watching Boogie Nights again, and I was struck by Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, Scotty, who has a crush on Mark Wahlberg. I don't even think he thinks he's gay. In one sense, American Gigolo functions as a simple objective correlative. It is secretly and ambiguously gay, as Brett is secretly and ambiguously gay. The closeted gay dude who's not even quite sure if he's gay, or whatever that means. One of the reasons I was so alienated was I was gay, which was very—even living in liberal Los Angeles, you still weren't out as a teenager. It was something I just kind of accepted and said, okay, this is another thing that I've got to deal with. How am I going to navigate through this? American Gigolo has no relation to Play It As It Lays or The Shining, has no relation to the World Modeling Agency sign, has no relation to the house on Valley Vista Boulevard. And yet all these unrelated things are emitting the same message, which Brett, who possesses an uncannily sensitive intelligence and who seems to exist in a constant state of heightened, near-fanatical receptivity, picks up on. That there's a top layer to life that makes it look one way, whole, solid, orderly, reliable, and then a layer underneath that makes life look an entirely different way, wild and weird and full of mystery and mania, passion and danger, chaos and kink. And what's more, the two layers are equally real and equally true. They don't cancel each other out, as would seem inevitable. No, they enhance each other. This is a key, maybe the key insight for Brad. And all at once, his feelings, which up to this moment, 
have been scattered, instinctual, and unthought, gather into a coherent version of reality. He now has a point of view. He says this. There was a kind of numbness that was being explored in a lot of the art and a lot of the music, uh, certainly in part of the punk scene and in the new wave scene in the late 70s and into the early 80s. But it was a numbness that had a feeling as well. This notion that numbness was something that you could enter into and play with and try to express in some way. And that was where I was at in my late teenage years. That was what was on my mind. He also says this. Cocaine made sense of the random. Really, though, what cocaine makes sense of is the paradox, which is how numbness, a condition of non-feeling, of being incapable of feeling, can, for Brett, be a feeling, which is also how he can be happy in his unhappiness, connected in his estrangement, in harmony with his world, even as he's out of tune with it. The first bolt from the blue, Joan Didion. The second bolt from the blue, American Gigolo. The third bolt from the blue really is a bolt from the blue, meaning it's a gift from God, i.e. dumb luck. Brett, in 1980, during the summer between his sophomore and junior years, goes from ugly duckling to beautiful swan. Or, in 80s parlance, from totally geek to totally chic. Ajay Seagal. There were a couple of friends of his that were like true sort of geeky outsiders in a group of kids that were all trying to be cool and stuff. And then like in 11th grade or something, I can't really exactly remember, he grew or thinned out or something. And all of a sudden he was like this handsome guy. And all of a sudden the popular girl wanted to go out with him. The popular girl who wants to go out with Brett is Julie Foreman. Julie will become his first girlfriend. More about Julie in a minute. So, Brett is not just socially acceptable, he's socially desirable, which means the observer of the drama is, all at once, a player in it. The voyeur, a participant, which in turn means the last piece of the puzzle necessary to create less than zero, is in place. Brett has his language, courtesy of Joan Didion. He has his vision, courtesy of American Gigolo. And now he has his characters, courtesy of his brand new pals. There are three principles in Lesson Zero. There's Clay. Clay, 18 and passive, druggy and bi. There's Clay's girlfriend. And the smart, spoiled, tough girl, Blair. And finally, there's Clay's best friend. Julian, who turns tricks with older men in order to pay off a drug debt, and who Clay does nothing in order to save. Clay is Brad. Whether the two are an exact match in their character-logical particulars or not is irrelevant. They're close enough. Same goes for Clay's girlfriend, Blair, and Brett's girlfriend, Julie Foreman. Okay, now let's talk about Julie. Or rather, let's listen to Ajay talk about Julie. Julie had horses and lived in this beautiful house with her sister Mandy and their parents. And the dad was a very famous, but very successful producer. A bit more on Julie. 
Julie Foreman is the daughter of Linda Foreman, known professionally as Linda Lawson, a minor television actress, and John Foreman, a major player in the film industry. John helped found CMA, Creative Management Associates, the hot power packaging agency of the 60s. Then he teamed up with Paul Newman, whom he'd once represented, to form the Newman Foreman Company, which produced, among other features, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the top-grossing movie of 1969 and a nominee for Best Picture to boot. John is also a prominent figure on the Hollywood social circuit. Princess Grace is a close personal friend, as is Sean Connery. Joan Didion's husband, the late John Gregory Dunn, writes in his nonfiction book Monster of the Foreman's legendary annual Christmas party. Rock Hudson here, Hank and Shirley Fonda over there, John Houston holding court in the corner, Jeff Berg and his psychologist wife, Denny Loria, with their infant daughter Kate in their arms, Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner at the buffet. It's a cozy domestic scene Dunn is describing, well, cozy-ish, and yet the players in it are some of the most dazzling creatures in the world and of the era. And that these people are casual and no big deal to Julie, friends of her parents, for God's sake, practically part of the furniture, would, for Brett, only intensify the glitziness of the situation. Movie stars and star directors and star agents are to her what the gray-suited, gray-faced businessmen associates of Bob Ellis are to him. Hollywood as a way of life like any other. What could be more glamorous than that? It certainly puts Michael Landon and his multiple TV guide covers in the shadows. Ajay. So I think that also was one of the lures for Brett, which was Julie was the kind of girlfriend that like, when you're her boyfriend and over at the house, you might meet Joan Didion, you know, because Julie's dad was in business with John and Joan. Um, they were over at the house a lot. There are, of course, velvet ropes behind velvet ropes. We needed Brett to get past the first velvet rope, lead us into the Buckley School. We now need Brett and Julie to get us past the second velvet rope, lead us into more rarefied territory still. The place where you can do the Jingle Bell Rock with Rock Hudson, eavesdrop on the marital chit-chat of R.J. Wagner and Natalie Wood. Julie's family, they lived a kind of what some would call an aspirational Beverly Hills moneyed life. And Brett, a valley boy, the son of a man in real estate rather than movies. In L.A., there's only one industry that counts. Is an aspirant. Brett was from the valley. I was from the valley. The valley had a negative connotation. It wasn't as cool as being from the west side. It wasn't as cool as being from Beverly Hills or whatever. Lame. It was like a lame place to live, a lame place to do anything. The equivalent is like he lived in Queens and he wanted to live in Manhattan. An added point of fascination for Brett. John Foreman may be Julie's father and Linda's husband, but that doesn't mean he's straight. Ajay. So Julie's dad, he was a really nice guy, uh, you know, 97% certainty that he was living a gay, closeted life. He had a boyfriend always around, a friend named Dennis, always around, good-looking younger guy. So in John Foreman, Brett perhaps sees a model for his own life, officially heterosexual, unofficially homosexual. John, presumably, has reached some kind of understanding with Linda, and their marriage seems workable. Might Brett and Julie enter into a similar arrangement in the future? 
I had a girlfriend and her father was a big movie producer, a guy named John Foreman, who produced Butch Cassidy. He was Paul Newman's producing partner. And, um, and he was gay, actually. He died of AIDS. Um, but it, that's, that's the world. A lot of creative men in that world had married women and were gay. And so it didn't really matter in, in our circles. There was no gay bashing. But in John Foreman, Brett without questions, he's a model for his fiction. Here's a passage from the audio version of Brett's book, Less Than Zero, read by Christian Rummel. Clay is at a party at Blair's house in Beverly Hills. From where I'm standing, I can see Blair's father, who's this movie producer, and he's sitting in a corner of the den talking with this young actor I think I went to school with. Blair's father's boyfriend is also at the party. His name's Jared, and he's really young and blonde and tan and has blue eyes and incredibly straight white teeth, and he's talking to the three boys from USC. I can also see Blair's mother, who is sitting by the bar drinking a vodka gimlet, her hands shaking as she brings the drink to her mouth. Blair is based on Julie Foreman, and Julian, the gay for pay junkie hustler, is inspired by Dominic Gross, whom we heard from earlier in this episode. He's the one who remembered Brett and Bruce Taylor drawing cartoons of Chip Rosenblum's drowning father. And perk your ears, listeners. I said Julian is inspired by Dominic, not based on. There's a difference, at least in my mind. To me, inspired by means based on, but loosely. It's a question of degree. All right, so just as Julie got Brett and us past one velvet rope beyond the velvet rope, so Dominic will get Brett and us past another velvet rope beyond the velvet rope. Julie's Hollywood is A-list, establishment, respectable. Dominic's Hollywood is the sleazy reverse of all that. But every bit is glamorous, plus excitingly, nastily forbidden. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. There was a story going around that there had been this person who had OD'd in an alley somewhere along Melrose. This rumor went around in 1981, 82, and that kids just were brought to see the body of another kid. And people uh, had heard about it, and someone would meet someone at a party, and then people would come over, find the space, and just gawk at this dead body. This has been a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz, production coordination by Terrence Malangone, studio coordination by Sean Cherry, artwork and design by Kurt Courtney, marketing by Brian Swarth, Josefina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners we got listeners no way amazing now available on the odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts i'm so happy we're at odyssey now oh my god they're amazing the commercial break podcast 
You heard it here last.